Chapter Fifteen of The Trumpet Major by Thomas Hardy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evers. The Trumpet Major by Thomas Hardy. Chapter Fifteen. Captain Bob Loveday of the Merchant Service. While Loveday and his neighbours were thus rambling forth, full of expectancy, some of them, including Anne in the rear, heard the crackling of light wheels along the curved lane to which the path was the cord. At once Anne thought, "'Perhaps that's he, and we are missing him.' But recent events were not of a kind to induce her to say anything, and the others of the company did not reflect on the sound. Had they gone across to the hedge which hid the lane and looked through it, they would have seen a light cart driven by a boy, beside whom was seated a seafaring man, apparently of good standing in the merchant service, with his feet outside on the shaft. The vehicle went over the main bridge, turned in upon the other bridge at the tail of the mill, and halted by the door. The sailor alighted, showing himself to be a well-shaped, active, and fine young man, with a bright eye, an anonymous nose, and of such a rich complexion by exposure to ripening suns, that he might have been some connection of the foreigner who calls his likeness the portrait of a gentleman in galleries of the old masters. Yet in spite of this, and though Bob Loveday had been all over the world, from Cape Horn to Pekin, and from India's coral strand to the White Sea, the most conspicuous of all the marks that he had brought back with him was an increased resemblance to his mother, who had lain all the time beneath Overcombe church wall. Captain Loveday tried the house door. Finding this locked, he went to the mill door. This was locked also, the mill being stopped for the night. "'They're not at home,' he said to the boy. "'But never mind that. Just help to unload the things, and then I'll pay you, and you can drive off home.' The cart was unloaded, and the boy was dismissed, thanking the sailor profusely for the payment rendered. Then Bob Loveday, finding that he had still some leisure in his hands, looked musingly east, west, north, south, and Nadia, after which he bestirred himself by carrying his goods article by article round to the back door, out of the way of casual passers. This done, he walked round the mill in a more regardful attitude, and surveyed its familiar features one by one. The panes of the grinding-room, now, as heretofore, clouded with flour as with stale hoar-frost, the meal lodged in the corners of the window-sills, forming a soil in which lichens grew without ever getting any bigger, as they had done since his smallest infancy. The mosses, on the plinth towards the river, reaching as high as the capillary power of the walls, would fetch up moisture for their nourishment. And the penned mill-pond, now, as ever, on the point of overflowing into the garden. Everything was the same. When he'd had enough of this, it occurred to Loveday that he might get into the house in spite of the locked doors, and by entering the garden, placing a pole from the fork of an apple-tree to the window-sill of a bedroom on that side, and climbing across like a Barbary ape, he entered the window and stepped down inside. There was something anomalous in being close to the familiar furniture without having first seen his father, and its silent, impassive shine was not cheering. It was as if his relations were all dead, and into their tables and chests of drawers left to greet him. He went downstairs and seated himself in the dark parlour. 
finding this place, too, rather solitarily, and the stick of the invisible clock preternaturally loud, he unearthed the tinder-box, obtained a light, and set about making the house comfortable for his father's return, divining that the miller had gone out to meet him by the wrong road. Robert's interest in this work increased as he proceeded, and he bustled round and round the kitchen as lightly as a girl. David, the indoor factotum, having lost himself among the court pots of Budmouth, there had been nobody left here to prepare supper, and Bob had it all to himself. In a short time a fire blazed up the chimney, a tablecloth was found, the plates were clapped down, and a search made for what provisions the house afforded, which, in addition to various meats, including some fresh eggs of the elongated shape that produces cockerels when hatched, and had been set aside on that account for putting under the next broody hen. A more reckless cracking of eggs than that which now went on had never been known in Overcombe since the last large christening, and as Loveday gashed one on the side, another at the end, another long ways, and another diagonally, he acquired adroitness by practice, and at last made every son of a hen of them fall into two hemispheres as neatly as if they were opened by a hinge. From eggs he proceeded to ham, and from ham to kidneys, the result being a brilliant fry. Not to be tempted to fall too before his father came back, the returned navigator emptied the hole into a dish, laid a plate over the top, his coat over the plate, and his hat over his coat. Thus, completely stopping in the appetising smell, he sat down to await events. He was relieved from the tediousness of doing this by hearing voices outside, and in a minute his father entered. "'Glad to welcome you home, father,' said Bob, "'and supper is just ready.' "'Lord, Lord, why, Captain Bob's here,' said Mrs. Garland. "'And we've been out waiting to meet thee.' said the miller, as he entered the room, followed by representatives of the houses of Cripplestraw, Comfort, Mitchell, Beach, and Snooks, together with some small beginnings of Fensible Tremlett's posterity. In the rear came David, and quite in the vanishing point of the composition, Anne the Fair. "'I drove over and was so was forced to come by the road,' said Bob. "'And we went across the fields thinking you'd walk,' said his father. I should have been here this morning, but not so much as a wheelbarrow could I get for my traps. Everything was gone to the review. So I went too, thinking I might meet you there. I was then obliged to return to the harbour for the luggage. Then there was a welcoming of Captain Bob by pulling out his arms like drawers and shutting them again, smacking him on the back as if he were choking, holding him at arm's length so that he were of too large type to read close. All which persecution Bob bore with a wide, genial smile, that was shaken into fragments and scattered promiscuously among the spectators. "'Get a chair for him,' said the miller to David, whom they had met in the fields, and found to have got nothing worse by his absence than a slight slant in his walk. "'Never mind, I'm not tired. I've been here ever so long,' said Bob, and I—' But the chair having been placed behind him, and a smart touch in the hollow of a person's knee by the edge of that piece of furniture, having a tendency to make the person sit without further argument— Bob sank down dumb, and the others drew up other chairs at a convenient nearness for easy analytic vision and the subtler forms of good fellowship. The miller went about saying, "'David, the nine best glasses from the corner cupboard. David, the corkscrew. David, whisk the tail of thy smock-frock round the inside of these cork-pots afore you draw drink on em. They be an inch thick in dust. David, 
Lower that chimney-crook a couple of notches, that the flame may touch the bottom of the kettle, and light three more of the largest candles. If you can't get the cork out of the jar, David, bore a hole in the tub of Hollands that's buried under the scroff of the fuel-house. Do you hear? Dan Brown left them there yesterday as a return for the little porker I gied him. When they had all had a thimbleful round, and the superfluous neighbours had reluctantly departed one by one, the inmates gave their minds to the supper which David had begun to serve up. "'What be you rolling back the tablecloth for, David?' said the miller. "'Mr. Bob has put down one of the undersheets by mistakes, and I thought you might not like it, sir, as ladies present.' "'Faith, it was the first thing that came to hand,' said Robert. "'It seemed a tablecloth to me.' "'Never mind. Don't pull off the things now he's laid em down. Let it bide,' said the miller. Uh, "'But where's Biddo Garland and Maidy Anne?' "'They be here but a minute ago,' said David. "'Depend upon it, they've slinked off, cause they be shy.' The miller at once went round to ask them to come back and sup with him, and while he was gone, David told Bob, in confidence, what an excellent place he had for an old man. "'Here, Captain Bob, as I suppose I must call ye. I've worked for your father these eight and thirty years, and we've always got on very well together.' Trust me with all the keys, lends me his sleeve waistcoat, and leaves the house entirely to me. Widow Garland next door to is just the same with me, and treats me as if I was her own child. She must have married young to make you that, David. Yes, yes, I'm years older than she. Tis only my common way of speaking. Mrs. Garland would not come in to supper, and the meal proceeded without her. Bob recommending to his father the dish he had cooked in the manner of a householder to a stranger just come. The miller was anxious to know more about his son's plans for the future, but would not for the present interrupt his eating, looking up from his own plate to appreciate Bob's travelled way of putting English victuals out of sight, as if he would have looked at a mill on improved principles. David had only just got the table clear, and set the plates in a row under the bakehouse table for the cats to lick, when the door was hastily opened, and Mrs. Garland came in, looking concerned. "'I've been waiting to hear the plates removed, to tell you how frightened we are at something we heard at the back door. It seems like robbers muttering. But when I look out, there's nobody there.' "'Well, this must be seen to,' said the miller, rising promptly. "'David, light the middle-sized lantern, and I'll go and search the garden.' "'And I'll go too,' said his son, taking up a cudgel. "'Lucky I've come home just in time.' They went out stealthily, followed by the widow and Anne, who had been afraid to stay alone in the house under the circumstances. No sooner were they beyond the door, when, sure enough, there was the muttering almost close at hand, and low upon the ground, as from persons lying down in hiding. "'Bless my heart!' said Bob, striking his head as though it were some enemies. "'Why, it is my luggage! I quite forgot it!' "'What?' asked his father. "'My luggage!' "'Really, if it hadn't been for Mrs. Garland, it would have stayed there all night. "'They, poor things, would have been starved. "'I've got all sorts of articles for ye. "'You go inside, and I'll bring them in. "'Tis parrots that you hear are muttering, Mrs. Garland. "'You needn't be afraid any more.' "'Parrots?' said the miller. "'Well, I'm glad tis no worse. "'But how couldst forget so, Bob?' "'The packages were taken in by David and Bob, "'and the first unfastened were three unwrapped in cloths, which, being stripped off, revealed three cages, with a gorgeous parrot in each. "'This one is for you, father, to hang up outside the door and amuse us,' said Bob. "'He'll talk very well, but he's sleepy to-night. "'This other one I brought along for any neighbour that would like to have him. 
"'His colours are not so bright, but tis a good bird.' "'If you would like to have him, you are welcome to him,' he said, turning to Anne, who had been tempted forward by the birds. "'You've hardly spoken yet, Miss Anne, but I recollect you very well. How much taller you have got, to be sure!' Anne said she was much obliged, but did not know what she could do with such a present. Mrs. Garland accepted it for her, and the sailor went on, "'Now this other bird I hardly know what to do with, but I dare say he'll come in for something or other.' "'He's by far the prettiest,' said the widow. "'I would rather have it than the other, if you don't mind.' "'Yes,' said Bob, with embarrassment. "'But the fact is, that bird will hardly do for ye, ma'am. He's a hard swearer, to tell the truth, and I'm afraid he's too old to be broken of it.' "'How dreadful!' said Mrs. Garland. "'We could keep him in the mill,' suggested the miller. "'It won't matter about the grinder hearing him, "'for he can't learn to cuss worse than he do already.' "'The grinder shall have him, then,' said Bob. "'The one I have given you, ma'am, has no harm in him at all. "'You might take him to church of Sundays as far as that goes.' "'The sailor now untied a small wooden box, "'about a foot square, perforated with holes. "'Here are two marmosets,' he continued. "'You can't see them to-night, but they are beauties of the tufted sort.' "'What's a marmoset?' said the miller. "'Oh, a, a little kind of monkey. They bite strangers rather hard, but you'll soon get used to them.' "'They're rubbed up in something, I declare,' said Mrs. Garland, peeping in through a chink. "'Yes, that's my flannel shirt,' said Bob apologetically. "'They suffer terribly from cold in this climate, poor things, and I had nothing better to give them. "'Well, now, in this next box I've got things of different sorts.' The latter was a regular seaman's chest and out of it he produced shells of many sizes and colours, carved ivories, queer little caskets, gorgeous feathers, and several silk handkerchiefs, which articles were spread out upon all the available tables and chairs, till the house began to look like a bazaar. "'What a lovely shawl!' exclaimed Widow Garland, in her interest forestalling the regular exhibition, by looking into the box of what was coming. "'Oh, yes,' said the mate, putting out a couple of the most bewitching shawls that eyes ever saw. "'One of these I am going to give to that young lady I am shortly to be married to, you know, Mrs. Garland. "'Has father told you about it? "'Matilda Johnson of Southampton, that's her name.' "'Yes, we know all about it,' said the widow. "'Well, I shall give one of these shawls to her, because, of course, I ought to.' "'Of course,' said she. "'But the other one I have got no use for at all, and—' he continued, looking round. W "'Will you have it, Miss Anne? You refuse the parrot, and you ought not to refuse this.' "'Thank you,' said Anne, calmly, but much distressed. "'But really, I, I don't want it, and, and couldn't take it.' "'But do have it,' said Bob, in hurt tones, Mrs. Garland being all the while on tenterhooks, lest Anne should persist in her absurd refusal. "'Why, there's another reason why you ought to,' said he, his face lighting up with recollections. "'It never came into my head till this moment "'that I used to be your beau in a humble sort of way. "'Faith, so I did. "'We used to meet at places sometimes, didn't we? "'That is, when you were not too proud. "'And once I gave you, or somebody else, "'a bit of my hair in fun.' "'It was somebody else,' said Anne quickly. "'Ah, perhaps it was,' said Bob innocently. "'But it was you I used to meet, or, or try to, I'm sure.' "'Well, I've never thought of that boyish time for years till this minute. "'I'm sure you ought to accept some one gift, dear, "'out of compliment with those old times.' 
Anne drew back and shook her head, for she would not trust her voice. "'Well, Mrs. Garland, then you shall have it,' said Bob, tossing the shawl to that ready receiver. "'If you don't, upon my life, I will throw it out to the first beggar I see. "'Now, here's a parcel of cap-ribbons of the splendidest sort I could get. "'Have these, do, Anne?' "'Yes, do,' said Mrs. Garland. "'I, I promised them to Matilda,' continued Bob, "'but I'm sure she won't want them, as she's got some of her own, "'and I would have soon seen them upon your head, my dear, as upon hers.' "'I think you'd better keep them for your bride, if you promised them to her,' said Mrs. Garland mildly. "'It wasn't exactly a promise. I just said, "'Till there's some cap-rooms in my box, if you'd like to have them. "'But she's got enough things already for any bride in creation. "'Anne, now you shall have them. Upon my soul you shall, or I'll fling them down the mill-tail.' Anne had meant to be perfectly firm in refusing everything, for reasons obvious even to that poor waif, the meanest capacity, but when it came to this point she was absolutely compelled to give in, and reluctantly received the cap-ribbons in her arms, blushing fitfully, and with her lip trembling an emotion which she tried to exhibit as a smile. "'What would Tilly say if she knew?' said the miller slyly. "'Yes, indeed, and it is wrong of him.' Anne instantly cried, tears running down her face as she threw the parcel of ribbons on the floor. "'You better bestow your gifts where you bestow your—' "'Love, Mr. Loveday, that, that's what I say.' And Anne turned her back and went away. "'I'll take them for her,' said Mrs. Garland, quickly picking up the parcel. "'Now that's a pity,' said Bob, looking regretfully after Anne. "'I didn't remember that she was a quick-tempered sort of girl at all. "'Tell her, Mrs. Garland, that I ask her pardon. "'But of course I didn't know she was too proud to accept the little present. "'How should I? "'Upon my life, if it wasn't for Matilda, I'd—' "'Well, that can't be, of course.' "'What's this?' said Mrs. Garland, touching with her foot a large package that had been laid down by Bob unseen. "'That's a bit of backy for myself,' said Robert meekly. The examination of presents at last ended, and the two families parted for the night. When they were alone, Mrs. Garland said to Anne, "'What a close girl you are! I'm sure I never knew that Bob Loveday and you had walked together.' "'You must have been mere children.' Oh, "'Oh, yes, we were,' said Anne, now quite recovered. "'It was when we first came here, about a year after father died. "'We did not walk together in any regular way. "'You know, I have never thought the love days high enough for me. "'It was only just nothing at all, and I had almost forgotten it.' "'It is to be hoped that somebody's sins were forgiven her that night before she went to bed.' When Bob and his father were left alone, the miller said, "'Well, Robert, what about this young woman of thine? Matilda, what's her name?' "'Yes, father, Matilda Johnson. I was just going to tell you about her.' The miller nodded and sipped his mug. "'Well, she's an excellent body,' continued Bob. "'That can truly be said. A real charmer, you know. A nice, good, comely young woman. A miracle of genteel breeding, you know, and all that.' She can throw her hair into the nicest curls, and she's got splendid gowns and head-clothes. In short, you might call her a land mermaid. She'll make such a first-rate wife as there never was. <laughs> no doubt she will, said the miller, for I've never known thee wanting in sense in a general way. He turned his cup round on his axis till the handle had travelled a complete circle. How long did you say in your letter that you'd known her? A fortnight. 
Not very long. It don't sound long, tis true, and twas really longer, twas fifteen days and a quarter. But hang it, father, I could see in the twinkling of an eye that the girl would do. I know a woman well enough when I see her. I ought to, indeed, having been so much about the world. Now, for instance, there's Widow Garland and her daughter. The girl is a nice little thing, but the old woman— Oh, no! Bob shook his head. What of her? said his father, slightly shifting in his chair. Well, she's—she's—I mean, I should never have chosen her, you know. She's of a nice disposition, and young for a widow with a grown-up daughter. But if all the men had been like me, she would never have had a husband. I like her in some respects, but she's a style of beauty I don't care for. Oh, if tis only looks you're thinking of, said the miller, much relieved, there's nothing to be said, of course. Though there's many a duchess worse-looking, if it comes to argument, as you would find, my son, he added, with a sense of having been mollified too soon. The mate's thoughts were elsewhere by this time. As to my marrying Matilda, thinks I, here's one of the jerry gentilest sort, and I may as well do the job at once. So I chose her. She's a dear girl. There's nobody like her. Search where you will. How many did you choose her out from? inquired his father. Well, she was the only young woman I happened to know in Southampton, that's true. But what of that? It would have been all the same if I'd known a hundred. Her father is in business near the docks, I suppose. Well, no, in short, I didn't see her father. Her mother? Her mother? No, I didn't. I think her mother is dead, but she's got a very rich aunt living at Melchester. I didn't see her aunt, because there wasn't time to go. But of course we shall know her when we are married. "'Yes, yes, of course,' said the miller, trying to feel quite satisfied. "'And she will soon be here?' "'Ay, she's coming soon,' said Bob. "'She's gone to this aunt's at Melchester to get her things packed and such like, or she would have come with me. "'I'm going to meet the coach at the King's Arms, Casterbridge, on Sunday at one o'clock. "'To show what a capital sort of wife she'll be, I may tell you that she wanted to come by the Mercury, "'because tis a little cheaper than the other. "'But I said, "'For once in your life do it well, and come by the Royal Mail,' and I'll pay. I can have the pony and trap to fetch her, I suppose, as tis too far for her to walk. Of course you can, Bob, or anything else, and I'll do all I can to give you a good wedding feast. End of chapter 15 Recording by Simon Evers